We are going to be answering Bible questions tonight. Now, I don't know everything. I'm going to tell you flat up. As a matter of fact, the more I study, the more I realize I really don't know. Um, But I do find that people have a lot of Bible questions. Now, before I uh, go into just trying to answer some of your Bible questions, how many of you came with a question? Oh, I hope. Some of you better get a question quick. Because if we're questionless, then we're going home. No, it'll, it'll flow. Um, but let me ask you a question real quickly before we get started. Um, now, I'm getting ready to start another Wednesday night series, and I want to know, I want to get a reading on what you would have a hunger for or a desire for. Um, another book in the Bible, like going through one of the New Testament uh, epistles, one of those. We can do that. Um, or how about prophecies yet, unfil- uh, yet fulfilled? Prophecies yet fulfilled. Bible prophecies yet fulfilled. You like that one? Well, then it's done because Cindy likes it. If Cindy likes it, that's where I got to go. That's my wife there. <laughs> okay. Um, but so prophecies, because there are many prophecies yet fulfilled, yet to be fulfilled. It could happen right now. It's always been a dream of mine that I would be preaching right in the middle of something and be going, and Jesus, and be raptured, and see Jesus when I just said his name, and I'm pointing, and I'm preaching. Wouldn't that be great? How about you singing? You're you're in the middle of, and boof, there we are. Well, that's yet to be fulfilled. Uh, There's a lot of things on planet earth that are yet to be fulfilled. So I was thinking of going to Daniel, Ezekiel, a couple of places like that, and going into some of that. Would you be into that? So I take it that's where we're going. Okay. All right. So let it be written. So let it be done. Didn't Yul Brenner say that in a Bible movie once? Yeah. He was Pharaoh. All right. So the way we're going to do this tonight, you see the mics, okay? And Brendan is ready to... to uh, share some on- online questions that we've also gotten. But you are going to need to get up and come to the mic to ask the question. I want you to be afraid. No question is a bad question, but we're looking for Bible questions. So I'm just going to launch in, and I'm going to do my best to answer it. And if I can't answer it, I'll tell you I can't answer it. And maybe I can tell you where you can find the answer, okay? So let's begin. The, anybody have a question? You want to just walk up? Let's just do an altar call. You need to come to the mic and let's see. And let's go ahead and, and take some questions. All right. Is it hot? There you go. Okay. Um, God promised the Israelites that they could have the promised land, but because they messed up, they had to wait and wait and wait. Mm-hmm. What I wonder is, is you know, we mess up it, all the time now. God promised us that we would go to heaven if we believed in Jesus. Mm-hmm. But will he get mad and hold off on letting us go there? I too? see what you're saying. So am I going to lose my salvation or miss heaven somehow? Miss the rapture or the way they m- miss the promised land? Can that happen to us with heaven? Yeah. Okay. Let's remember. That's a great question. Um, Let's remember that they were under the Mosaic Covenant. They were under the leadership of Moses. And their promise was conditional, right? There are 
promises that only depend on God bringing them to pass, all right? They are unconditional. That's what we call them. Unconditional promises. One unconditional promise. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him, whoever believes on him will not perish. That's unconditional. If you believe on him, you will not perish, but you will have everlasting life, all right? Then there are conditional promises that always begin with an if. If you this, then I will that. All right? And the Old Testament uh, has both kinds of promises. All right? For instance, in the garden, when God said that out of Eve's seed was going to come a bruiser of Satan's head. That's Genesis 3.15. All right? He's talking about... He's talking about Christ, the Messiah. And he told the devil, out of the woman's seed is going to come one who's going to bruise your head. In other words, deal a death blow to you. Okay? That was unconditional. There was nothing men could do to stop that. That's going to happen no matter what. Messiah was going to come. All right? But when it came to the promised land... Over and over again, God said, if you believe my word, if you obey me, if you obey what I tell you to do, you will enter the promised land. Here's the sad thing. They could have been in in 40 days. The landmass, if they had just started walking, they could have been in. It just makes me cry every time I think of that. Because what could have been 40 days took 40 years. Why? Because they kept messing up and God kept holding them up. And they were their own worst enemies. But here's why. The promise was conditional. If you this, then I will that. If you don't this, I won't that. And so over and over again, they failed God. And you can track Israel's history. It's a sad history. All through the Old Testament. uh, They failed over and over. Finally, they creep into the promised land, but it wasn't even the first generation. Only two men out of the first generation made it. All the rest of them died, right? So you think that second generation wasn't saying, yes, sir, no, sir, whatever you say, sir, because they saw mom and dad die on this side of the Jordan. So, uh, you know, all that saying that there's, there's conditional promises, and that is what kept them from the promised land. But they finally got in. But, but then you track them and their whole history. You know, they reach their zenith under the kingship of David and under the kingship of Solomon. But at the end of Solomon's life, we know that Solomon's heart was carried away by foreign women who worship foreign gods. In other words, it matters who you hang with, right? It matters who you run with. You better know it because here's the wisest man on the whole planet and women, and nothing against women, all right? But it shows the power of a woman for good or for bad. Because uh, for men, women, you know, they're, they're a weakness. Not just a weakness, but you know what I'm saying. Men like women. And they can be very persuasive. And here's the wisest man on the planet, but he ends up, now this is stunning to me, but he ends up, literally building places on the top of a mountain for a child to be sacrificed to Molech, burned alive. Solomon, 
in his old age. Now, when Solomon died, a divided king left a divided kingdom. And the kingdom split into the northern tribes and the southern tribes. Okay? Northern tribes were ten tribes. Southern tribe, two. Judah and Benjamin. Then you had the ten tribes. You will note, I didn't mean to go off on the whole history of Israel here, but I'm just going to skip across it. You will note that they, they were under the covenants of God. If you will honor me and honor my word, I will honor you, and you will be witness to me, witnesses to me to the whole earth. That was God's plan for Israel, for the Jewish people. They were supposed to be, the, like the church is supposed to be the witness to Christ now. They were supposed to be the witness to God in Old Testament times. And they failed miserably over and over again. The ten tribes, when you track their history, you can sit down, brother. I'm keeping you standing for a long time. God bless you. Thank you. He's sitting there thinking, what have I got myself into? (laughs) No, here's the deal. The ten tribes never, never one time had one righteous king. Not once. Of all the kings they had, and they had a bunch. Some of them lasted a few weeks, and that was it. Kaboom, they're gone. I think one of them lasted one week, and he was gone. And that, that's, a, that's a, you know, here today, gone tomorrow. But now, um, the ten tribes didn't have one righteous king, and they went into idolatry from the get-go. And God allowed a foreign nation to come and take them away, the Assyrians. The Assyrian nation came and, and uh, defeated them, carried them into captivity, and guess what? They never returned. Judah, on the other hand, the southern tribes, um, sinned against God. Jeremiah, the prophet, said to them, he said, you have done worse than your sister Israel. You have sinned worse than your sister Israel because you saw Israel go astray and you didn't do anything about it. It did not move you to get your life right. They watched Israel, ten tribes, ten of God's tribes, be taken away into captivity, never to be seen again, never to return again. They watched that and they went, they doubled down in their sin and went even deeper into their sin until the Babylonians came and took them. And they went into a 70-year captivity and you know the rest of the story. But my point is this, they were under a conditional covenant. If you this, I will that. And, And that's the difference. Now, when it comes to you getting to heaven, you're under an unconditional covenant. Because it's not by your works. You're going to get to heaven by the blood of Jesus that covers you. Covers your sin. And the Holy Ghost lives inside of you if you're a child of God. And that means you have been sealed. I like to say signed, sealed, and delivered. Yeah. Right. Right. We all do. I interpret the forgiveness part. He's not, I don't believe he's saying you'll never go to heaven. I believe when you walk in unforgiveness, it breaks your relationship with God. It does not break your eternal life. It breaks your relationship with God. There's no way you can walk in unforgiveness and fellowship with God. Jesus said it. And it does position you 
for some hard times. Because Christ also said, as was done to the unforgiving man in his parable, when he would not forgive the lesser debt to his servant, he said, as was done to him will be done to you if you do not forgive your brother. And and Christ added, from your heart, not his lip service, from your heart. There have been times I've struggled with that. I said, Lord, I don't feel it in my heart. All right? Are y'all with me there? I've even wanted to pray worse than that on some people. Come on, don't look at me so holy. How many of you fully understand what the disciples said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven on Samaria? And Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. I've wanted to call fire down a few times, and I'm sure people have with me too. Let's put it this way. Thank God we can't do that. There'd only be ashes in the chairs. There'd be no church. But here's the deal. I believe that, that Jesus was saying, your relationship is broken when you don't forgive. If you walk in any kind of unconfessed sin, you haven't lost your salvation, you've broken a relationship. And so each and every day you don't forgive, you're missing out on walking with the Lord, bearing fruit, advancing the kingdom of God, fulfilling the will of God for your life. Your life literally comes to us, you are freeze-framed in life when you don't forgive. And I've known people who have not forgiven for literally decades. And, and they've come to me and said, well, I, you know, I just, I can't forgive. And they'll tell me the story. And I say, well, when did this happen? Oh, 27 years ago. And I'm just shocked. It's like, what? You've been walking? L- look at what you've missed. Because for 27 years, your relationship with God was broken. So it's never worth it. So here's the deal. Again, your salvation is unconditional. It's unconditional. Now, you might say, but we need to repent. I say, yes, you need to repent if you repent. But once you repent, it's unconditional. You are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. And you are a child of God adopted, born again, signed, sealed, and delivered. Okay, does that help? All right, someone else. Come on, everybody. Come on. Go to the microphone. There we go. I know people don't want to go to the microphone. It's, it's yeah. so uh, uh, serious. Stand there. Don't go anywhere. Go ahead, Donna. I have a question that's coming from 1 Corinthians 14, which is prophecy in tongues. And then the one of the third paragraph goes to order in church meetings. And then my question is on 1 Corinthians 15, 34, and you also probably need to read a little before that, is let your women keep silent in the churches. And this is in the New Testament, in the New Testament. Now, what verse are you in, Donna? I'm in New King James. No, but on what verse, chapter and verse? Is 14, First excuse Corinthians? Me. Excuse me, sir. Yeah. 14. 1 Corinthians 14, 34. Okay. All right. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. As the law, not the law, but that. So. Mm-hmm. And if they want to learn, sorry, and if they want to learn something, 
let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is shameful for women to speak in church. Can you please explain that? Okay. There's two issues with this. Two things that swirl around the church a lot. One is this, this verse about women keeping silent. Why in the world would Paul say this? And Paul has been called all kinds of things, anti-women and all kinds of things, because of verses like that. And he was anything but anti-woman. Uh, then the other one has to do with women leading in church. Taken even further, pastoring a church. All right? Should a woman pastor a church? And what is it about women being silent in church? Okay, let me deal with the first one. What some surmise is that in, in the first century, when churches were just coming into being, um, the women would sit on one side of the sanctuary, if it was a sanctuary, wherever they were meeting, and the men would sit on the other side. They were separated, all right? And what would happen is the women would be listening to a message or come up with some question and would shout it out to the, the, their husband on the other side. Hey, honey, what, is, what does that mean? Explain that to me. Now, some surmise that the reason he wrote that verse is because this was going on and it was disrupting the service. And um, so he's saying, don't do that. Don't shout your questions. Like, this is real good right here. All the men here, all the women here, they would shout it out, and the men would answer or tell them, hey, I'll tell you at home or something. Finally, Paul said, if you have questions for your husband, wait till you're home and ask him. I don't think Paul was shutting down women actually, I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. I don't want to get in trouble here, but here I go. My wife will get on the phone with a woman. It will go, and it will go, and it, and it will go, and it will go, until I'm tired just listening. How do you talk that long? Well, we, we, just, we just talk, they, and they love to talk. Men, they get on the phone. What about them cowboys? Well, I don't know. See you later, and they're done. All right? She goes off to lunch with, with women, to, to get with them, to counsel them or whatever. And, and I, I say, when are you going to be back? Oh, I'll be back in an hour or so. Four hours later, I find out they're still there. Waitresses have changed. All right? I, I mean, they watch people change shifts. They've been there so long. I, listen, I don't care who it is. I could not sit there in a restaurant for four hours with any man. Maybe Jesus. For sure, Jesus. But it stops there. But this is women. Now, so where I'm going with this is this. I don't think that Paul was saying women can't say anything in church. That's crazy. So, so I don't believe that's what it meant. That's not what it meant. It meant don't shout across the room and ask your husband a question. Don't disrupt the service because you don't understand something. Now, I think that's a good explanation. I'm not saying it's the explanation but it's one that I've read several times by very scholarly people who have studied this. Now, when it comes to women being the top leader in a church, I may get in trouble here, but I just got to tell you what the scriptures say. I don't believe that God 
put women to be senior pastors of churches. It's not there. A, you see no female pastor of a church in the Bible. Now, the Bible's my authority. Not the opinion of people. Not feminist theologians. The Bible is my authority. I go to the Bible for all truth. If if it doesn't agree with the Bible, it's not for me. The Bible is the word of God, right? And the Bible says, um, Paul is very, very clear. Uh, He tells uh, Titus, uh, and he talks about it in other places, that women are not anointed of God. It has nothing to do with value. It has nothing to do with intelligence. It has nothing to do with giftedness. It has to do with divine order. That's all. Divine order. He said the head of every man is Christ. The head of every man is, uh, or head of every woman is man. He's not talking about less than, inferior to, less gifted, none of that. He's only talking about divine order. And he says, I suffer not a woman to exercise authority over a man in the local church. Now, I can tell you as a pastor of many years, the senior pastor position, you've got to exercise authority all the time over the whole congregation. It is a position where you're exercising authority. I'm exercising authority right now to teach you to be here, to lead this flock, okay? Where our brother is from, Pastor Robert, he exercises authority that God has given him as the pastor of that church. And you exercise it every day. You have to make decisions. There are things you've got to decide regarding everybody. Now, he says the woman is not to exercise spiritual authority over men within the framework of the local church. And that's what he says. Say, well, I know female pastors, good. I'm not saying they're not there. But what I am saying is I don't see the Bible uh, prescribing that. I see the Bible actually saying don't do that. Now, if you have an issue with that, take it up with Paul, not me. I'm just reading it to you, right? But it's not. Now, can women teach? Uh, uh, Paul tells women, teach women. Women teach women. Teach women, all right? But when she stands up in the position of senior pastor, something is off there. And I, I've been in churches where uh, a woman was the senior pastor and it felt off to me. It felt her husband sitting there on the front row. And, and nobody you know, this was a long time ago, so don't start thinking, all right? But uh, I remember feeling very uncomfortable because she was exercising authority over the whole congregation, and that is not an authority that God has given her. And, and that's just where I take my stand because that is what Scripture says. But teaching, preaching, I've known wonderful female evangelists who could who could... Uh, I've known women who could preach the paint off the wall. But taking the position of senior pastor is where the line is drawn. And so that's my answer to that. All right. Okay. Hi, Pastor. Hello, Charles. Okay. Can you hear me all right? Is this good? Yes. All right. Um, 
I hear you a lot on the radio and preaching and all that. Right. And, you know, talking about America on the slip, yes. slippery slope that it's on and all that. Okay. Yes. And we read in, in Paul in Acts 24 when he's before Felix, okay? Mm-hmm. He, um, well, he was there. Um, Felix wanted to know the things of Christ, okay? Right. But I don't know how much he really wanted to know them. Yeah. Because <laughs> not receiving the message very well. Right. But his wife was a Jewish, and Paul, his uh, apostleship was to the Gentiles. Right. And yet, he went to synagogues and taught there. So he taught to God-fearers. There might have been Gentiles there, too, as well, wanting to know, you know, the word. Mm -hmm. And so here we see that in verse 25 of 24, as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, which is Mm self-control, and judgment to come, what happened was Felix trembled. Yes. You know, and it's just, I'm wondering, in our land, don't you believe that what's happening is they're not really preaching the warning of judgment to come, you know, in, mm-hmm. you know, of the Lord? Right. And then also Paul, before Agrippa, he said to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. Mm-hmm. And I love the well-rounded teaching we have here, but... I think it's really lacking in our land. To, and isn't it our responsibility to preach of judgment to come? Yes. As a warning, you know, to uh, Gentiles, those that are lost. Yes. Uh, yes, it is something that the church should be preaching. Um, one of my burdens right now, for sure, and has been for quite some time, is I feel the Western church, and when I say Western, I'm saying, say, England, America, um, Australia, uh, just what we would call the Western Hemisphere, uh, but let's just say America, the Western, the, the church in America has drifted from what I call real gospel preaching and teaching the Word of God. Um, we have devolved. If you were to go onto uh, Christian TV and I'm not saying all of them because there's some good people on Christian TV. There's, there's a few, but I don't think it's the majority. Now, I don't want to be too critical, but that's what it looks like to me. And what you hear is God wants you rich. God wants you with the best. He wants you to have uh, the best parking place at Walmart. He wants you to, um, you know, succeed in, in all this and that and the other, but it all has to do with materialism. And it's like a motivational seminar or a pep talk or a self-help thing, okay? And if, if, when you go to the, the, the way the word used to be preached, it's just not there anymore. You don't hear about the cross? I'll tell you something that really shocked me. And I'm glad you asked this, Charles, because this is right up my alley. This is my lane, okay? Uh, one of the best-known pastors in America, somebody got 10 of their sermons, Ten of them, Sunday morning sermons, Sunday morning, when the majority, not only a huge congregation, but a huge um, social media and television outreach. And I'm not talking about Joel. I just want to be clear. I'm not talking about Joel. But this was somebody big. They took 10 sermons 
and they went through them. What were they looking for? They were looking for two things. Did you mention the cross and did you mention or did you call anybody to repent of anything? And in 10 sermons, how many times was the cross mentioned? Zero. Zero. And how many people were called to repent of anything? Zero. Zero. What did they hear? And I'm talking about millions of people. What did they hear? Motivational seminars, self-help talk, uh, stories about their life or whatever, but, but not a Bible message. No opening up a verse and exegeting it. And when I say exegete, I mean interpret it and open it up and teach it to the people, which is what a preacher is supposed to do. Hello, everybody. What did Paul tell Timothy? He said, he said, Timothy, Pastor Timothy, Timothy was a pastor. He said, Pastor Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word. Preach three words. Preach the word. That's hard to misunderstand. All right? Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering, gentleness, and kindness, and, and doctrine, and so on and so forth. So Paul told Timothy, who was a pastor, I want you to open up that word. I want you to feed them the word because that's the manna. That's what's going to keep them going. Explain the Christian life to them. Tell them how to walk with Jesus. Tell them how to defeat the devil. Tell them how this thing works. Explain it to them. Open up the word. And to me, to me, I can understand maybe a message or two not mentioning the cross of Christ, just mentioning it. Um, you don't have to the whole sur- uh, message about it. But I, I, the, the more I go on, the more I realize that to leave the cross out of your messages is like taking the smile off Mona Lisa. It, it's like wait a minute, the epicenter of our faith is the cross. We're all here because of the cross. We're all saved because of the cross. We're born again because of the cross. We're filled with the Spirit because of the cross. We're going to heaven because of the cross. We missed hell because of the cross. I mean, to not talk about the cross, to me, it's almost freaky. But to have millions of people watching, and in 10 Sundays, not one mention. Not one. You, you could have been in some, uh, you know, workout place just doing a motivational seminar. Why, why do it in a church? So, um, no, they're not preached. Because when I talk about the cross, I've noticed Sunday, I mentioned the cross. And I'm doing my best. And now I'm really going to be in for it because y'all are going to be watching to see if I do it. But, but I'm doing my best with with. Most of my messages, if not all of them, to weave the cross in somewhere. Because Sunday, I did that. And uh, in the first service, people came down to get saved. And, and one girl weeping her eyes out, getting saved. A Jewish man who had never prayed a prayer of salvation in his life got saved. Because there's something about the cross that, that, that grabs people's hearts. And, and, and somehow, some way, in the Western church, the messages have been gutted of the cross. Charles Spurgeon, one of my heroes, 
pastor in the 1800s. You can sit down, Charles. I, I'm, you're about to fall over. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to keep you that long. Um, but Charles Spurgeon, one of my pastoral heroes, and he was in the 1800s in London. He had a megachurch before there were megachurches. And Charles Spurgeon said, um, here's what he did. Now, if you've ever been to his church, and we've been there, we, we've seen it. Um, but when he preached, he had to climb ascending stairs all the way up to this very elevated position where his pulpit was because his sanctuary was so huge and uh, there were no sound systems. So he had no speakers, no microphones, no nothing. His voice had to carry to 5,000 people. And so they would, they would make these um, incredible sanctuaries that that carried sound. And, and they had to put the preacher way up there where when he spoke out, it, it covered the room. And Spurgeon had an incredible voice anyway. And he said, as I'm ascending those stairs, he said, I say this every time, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Because he said, I know when I get up there, and I start declaring the word that there's no way anybody's going to come to Jesus apart from the Holy Spirit. And he always, and then he said, he said, when I start preaching, I made it my business to make a beeline for the cross of Christ. And nobody could explain the word and feed the saints like he could. I mean, he broke the bread, folks, but he managed to put the cross in there and win so many people to Jesus, he might as well have been an evangelist. So to me, it's sad that, I don't know, if we're afraid of losing people's money and we're going to offend them and they're going to leave, um, if we're afraid of not being popular, if we want to be accepted by the world, I don't know what the deal is, but we've gotten into, we're, we're, just, we're not opening up a verse or verses and explaining them and then telling people, judgment is coming. And, and you are going to be judged. There is a judgment day that's on the way. And, and, and if you're not saved by Christ and him alone, you will perish in your sin. You will die in your sin. And that's a terrible thought, to die in your sin. Your sin not answered for. So, yes. And, and so pray for me because I, I, you look, I, I don't want motivational seminars. I want to get up and tell you how to do it, how to live it, how to walk it, how to talk it how to succeed, uh, spiritually speaking. And I want to see people saved that are in this congregation that are lost. Amen? All right, Pastor, we've got several online questions that I want to get to real quick. Hang on, Pam. We'll get to you. Okay, okay. here's the first one. When we get to heaven, will we get our crowns immediately if we deserve a crown? That's two questions. How do you deserve a crown? And when do you get the crown? All right. We know the phrase good works, right? Good works. And we tell people all the time, good works are not going to save you. You're not going to be saved by good works. And that's true. Never. There's not anything you could do uh, to save yourself. You can't do it. But once you're saved, the evidence of your salvation is good works. And I would challenge you to read just Titus, the book of Titus, 
And look how many times he tells them to be involved in good works. He, be sure you get your church. He's talking to Titus. Be sure you get the church folks, the, the Christians involved in good works. Be sure they do good works. Be sure they maintain and sustain good works. All right? Now, what's a good work? It is when you do something in obedience to God for the glory of God. Okay? You witness to somebody. You pray. You do missions. Uh, you love somebody in the name of the Lord Jesus who is lost and, and they need to see love. You, you do something that Jesus did. You do it in obedience to him. Not for your glory, but for the glory of God. And Jesus said, now remember when he said this, uh, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break through and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't corrupt and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. All right, I ask you tonight, if Jesus told me to store up treasures in heaven, how do I do it? Sounds great, but how do I do it? Okay, Lord, I want treasures in heaven. How do I do it? Good works. Good works. You do it by good works. And so, you know, we could spend the rest of the night on everybody in here has a gift, a spiritual gift, at least one. And God has called every single one of you, everybody watching right now online, God has called every one of you to good works, to good works. And that doesn't mean coming to church and sitting in a chair and amening the preacher. Although I do appreciate that. But no, a good work is a work of obedience. It's a work of glorifying God. Uh, and, and the Bible says when we do good works, Jesus said, let your light so shine that men may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So when you're out there doing a good work and the lost see you doing it unto the Lord, not for money, not for your own fame or attention, but you're ministering to people in the name of Christ. When men see that, it says they glorify your Father who is in heaven. So it causes a reaction amongst the lost. Now, crowns. I have to attach the crowns to good works. There's the crown of righteousness. There's the soul winner's crown. Hallelujah. There's a pastor's crown. Yeah, there is. There's a there's a, a crown for the faithful pastor. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. Come on. All right. There's, there's crowns. I've counted anywhere from five to eight. Some people teach five. Some uh, people teach eight. But there's many crowns. Now, go to 1 Corinthians 3. And, uh, and just let me quote it to you. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is saying, uh, I have laid the foundation for the church. The foundation is Christ. And he said, now, you Christians, he said, those of you that are involved in works, there's two kinds of works. Some work and some don't. The good works, he said, they are like gold, silver, and precious stones. The not so good works, which I, I interpret this way, I did it for my glory, for attention to come to me, I didn't point up to Jesus. Uh, how many times do you read about a millionaire or a billionaire or a zillionaire these days who, who made sure everybody knew and it was in all the papers that they gave X amount of money to a charity or to some work? Right? 
they do. They, they want it. They want the attention. They don't want to look to point to God. You never read, yeah, I did this. You know, I'm a billionaire. You know, I'm a, I'm a Bill Gates type. I'm, I, I'm a billionaire. And, and I gave away uh, uh, $10 million to this charity to the glory of Jesus. No. You hear them say, I gave away $10 million to this charity because I'm so incredible. I'm such a good person. Jesus said they got their reward right then. What was it? Ooh, aren't they something? But they didn't do it for the glory of God. When I do a good work for the glory of God, I get a crown. Now, when do you get them? You get them when we go before the judgment seat of Christ. There's several judgments in the Bible. There's the great white throne judgment that's going to happen at the end of the millennial. At the end of the thousand-year millennium, the great white throne judgment is going to take place. And to me, that's in Revelations 20, and to me, it's the scariest part of the whole Bible to read about that judgment. It's the scariest part. Because it says, the dead are called Death and hell give up the dead that are in them. The sea gives up the dead that, is it, that are in it. And the dead, he says, the small and the great, the who's who's and the not so who's who's, go before, ready who? Jesus Christ. And the books are opened. And the book of life is opened. And if your name is not found written in the book of life, He says, depart from me, and you are cast into the lake of fire forever. That's what it says. No getting around it. Okay? So there's that judgment. The judgment seat of Christ is not to judge our sin. The judgment seat of Christ, talked about in 1 Corinthians 3, is to judge our works as Christians. And our works are going to be judged. And Paul says, by fire. Now, not hell fire, but by the fire of God's judgment. Your works are going to be judged. And if they were all about you and for you and to your glory, they burn up like wood, hay, and stubble. Yet if you were a genuine believer, you still get in. Except, we could say, by the skin of your chinny, chin, chin. You still get in. But he says, so as if by fire. In other words, you get in. But there's no rewards for you because it was all about you. I know a lot of Christians do things for their own glory. I see it. I see it. You see it. They do all kinds of things for their own glory. But now, if you did it for the glory of God and in obedience to him and it furthered his kingdom, you're going to get a reward. And it will be these crowns. And I believe you get the crowns right then at the judgment seat of Christ. All right. Okay. All right, here's, here's an interesting question. It's from okay. Jer- Jeremiah 7.18. Who is the queen of heaven? And a follow-up to that, is Mary considered the queen of heaven? No. Jer- Jeremiah 7.18. Queen of... Uh, okay, tell me the uh, verse again. Jeremiah 7.18. Jeremiah 7.18. Okay, I can tell you right off the bat that Mary is not the queen of heaven. Now, I want to be real careful... Um, but straightforward, because I know some of you were raised in Catholicism. Let me find 18. The children gather wood. 
Oh, the fathers kindle the fire and the women need dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. The queen of heaven in this, in this verse was an idol. That's all. Um, it could have been Ashtoreth. There was an idol named that. Uh, a, a false god, Ashtoreth. And I believe Ashtoreth was female. Could have been her. But all this is talking about is making a sacrifice to an idol. And that's who the queen of heaven is there. It's a false god. There is no queen in heaven. It, whether or not it's Mary, no. Listen, Mary was chosen of God to bring forth the Christ child. But the Catholic Church, if you go back a couple of centuries after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, so around three to 400 A.D., the Catholic Church was really forming. They were forming their infrastructure, uh, their, um, their different levels of authority, you know, their, their bishops, and all the way up to finally where they uh, conceived of the Pope being the vicar of Christ and being the um, carrying on the apostleship of Peter, all right? It's called the Petrine Succession, the succession of St. Peter. So the Pope was considered to be inerrant. There's nothing that they could say that was, that was not true. And so the Catholic Church developed into this. And as they developed into this, one of the things they came up with was Mary worship. Mary worship is where they began to teach the people, you can go to Mary and Mary will go to Jesus for you. Go to Mary. Mary can hear your prayers. Mary can pray for you. Mary can help you. You, you need to go. And so it became Mary worship. The only problem is that's nowhere in the Bible. All right? We find Mary at the cross. We find Mary in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, like all the other believers. She was filled with the Holy Spirit in the upper room, like all the other believers were, the 120. But she was just a woman. And when she died, she died like any other woman. She's not in heaven interceding for you. She's not somebody you can talk to. Uh, she's not going to hear you if you talk to her. Because there is one mediator between God and man, the Bible says, the man, Christ Jesus. He's the only mediator. All right? So there is no other. So the whole thing of Mary worship and going to Mary and Mary having this position came about uh, via the Catholic Church way back in around the 3rd or 4th century A.D. Yes, sir. Believing that is because when Jesus did the first miracle, they came to her and they said, hey, they've run out of wine. Yeah. And she says, my son's right over there. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. And so he did the first miracle of his ministry by turning the water into wine. Yeah. So they believe she's got pulled with Jesus so you can go to her and, and she'll do the yeah. same thing for you. Yeah. That's where that came from, I think. Yeah. Well, her advice was great. I have preached on it. I mean, how can you beat that advice? Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. I could tell the whole world that. I mean, that's great advice. That was a good, listen, that wasn't just a, a mother's advice. That was somebody who knew who he was. Uh, but, but that has nothing to do with her being able to help you now. So um, if you've been talking to Mary, stop and just talk to Jesus. He'll hear you. Amen. <laughs> All right.
Oh, Pam, go ahead. Yes. Okay, when I'm reading the Old Testament and it'll say this particular king did was what was evil in the Lord's sight mm-hmm. or this one did what was good in the Lord's sight. And then he died and his son became the next king. Yes. And he did what was either evil or right. good. In, and what I just didn't understand is if, if you know, this person has watched their father because it has said that their father, I mean, this person was king for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And so now he died. So now his son is king. So now his son has watched his father for 40 years. Mm-hmm. So now he becomes king, and he does what was evil in the Lord's sight. So I just didn't understand how you've been raised. I know people don't do what their sure. parents, you know. I get but it. But I just don't understand how, you know, you watch your father who did what was good in the Lord's sight, and then when you become king, you worship idols, and you do what was yeah. what's evil in the Lord's sight. Yeah. So, and then the, the kingdom... And the people followed them. Yeah. So why would they follow this new king and the king that yeah. just died did what was good? How, how were they not ships off the old block? Yeah. Yeah. Because when you look at the kings, and that's a good question, when you look at the kings, remember I told you in the uh, uh, northern kingdom, there was no good kings. None. They were all evil. All of them. In the southern kingdom, there was a lot of good ones and a lot of bad ones. But... Uh, we look at that and we go, to me, it tells me two things. One, if there's a bad king and his son turns out good, and you see that happening, you got this wicked king, but his son turns around and does good. It shows you, you do not have to follow the wrong example. In other words, because my daddy uh, was a sinner, didn't live for God, doesn't mean I'm stuck in being the same, I have a will. I can choose to follow God. I do not have to go the way of a wicked father. Now, flip-flop, if it's a good king and his son comes up and, and does evil, it shows you the power of sin and the deceptive nature of sin. The Bible says of sin, it's deceptive. And what Israel, Israel and Judah, constantly fell prey to was idolatry constantly. I mean, they were chronic idolaters. I I mean, I've marked up my Bible. Just, I can't believe this. I can't believe after what they just saw, they turn around and worship idols, even though they just watched God judge the fire out of somebody for doing the same thing. They not only do it, but they double down and do it worse. And you go, what, what is wrong with these people? It's, it's a, it was almost a pathological, uh, weakness for idolatry. But then one day it occurred to me, we don't have little wooden figurines. We don't have little statues. Uh, most of us, I trust, we don't have something in the middle of the living room we're bowing down to. But guess what? If you don't make Christ first, you will have an idol. You will have an idol. And there's a lot of Christians. They, they, oh, yeah, I'm going to heaven. I believe in Jesus. But you look at their life, and Jesus is not on the throne of their life. Something else is. You can make an idol out of you. You can make an idol out of another person. You can make an idol out of a habit. You can make an idol out of anything. Anything that takes number one money. 
Anything that takes number one place in your life instead of God is an idol, whether you can see it or not. We're all pathological idolaters if we don't make Jesus first, right? So I think it's the weakness. It's a weakness towards sin. And, and they were seduced like Solomon. I, Solomon blows my mind what I told you. I can't believe he went so far down that he climbed up that hill and built an altar to burn a baby alive to a false god. Solomon, Proverbs, all that he wrote. All right. Okay. One last question. I got two. Oh, okay. <laughs> Fire away. Is there anywhere in the Bible where it was foretold on what happened to the Jews during World War II? To who? To the Jews. What happened to them in World War II, the total... The um, Holocaust. The Holocaust. Was that foretold in the Bible anywhere? Okay, I, I want to be careful here because, boy, this could, this could come back. But I thought of this, all right? When Jesus was being held captive by Pilate and Pilate wanted to release him, and he said, he said I, I've got Barabbas and I've got Jesus. Who do I release? And I'll give you Jesus. And they said, Barabbas, who was a murderer. They said, give us Barabbas. Who said it? Read your Bible, the Jewish people. They said, give us Barabbas. He said, but why? I find no fault in Jesus. And they said, crucify him. And then they said this. May his blood be on our heads and our children's heads. And I believe they cursed their descendants when they said that. I believe they put their descendants under judgment because they said, instead of releasing Christ who has done nothing, we want a murderer and we want you to kill the Son of God. And I believe that that puts something on their generations. Now, in saying that, the Jews that died in the Holocaust had nothing to do with what was said at that moment. But to me, Jesus looked at Jerusalem and said, how many times? He says he wept. How many times I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And henceforth, uh, you won't be saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Or you won't want to see me until you're ready to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so, to me, they really spoke something over themselves there. And uh, Moses also told them, if you forsake the Lord, then you look at the list of judgments Moses laid out. I think it's Deuteronomy 18 or 28. I can't remember which. But all the judgments he laid out. And then you look at what happened to them all through history. Yeah. Go ahead. I have one other question. Okay. In Matthew 25, there's two parables. The parable of the ten virgins. Yes. And the parable of the talents. Right. I understood it that it's speaking to the believer. But then you have half of the virgins that are left outside, mm -hmm. which I'm assuming they're not saved. That's right. That's my assumption. And then on the talents, the one that hid his one talent mm -hmm. ended up being on the outside with the gnashing of teeth. Yeah. And I can't, like I thought they were speaking to the believer, but I don't know where's that, where's that one guy that hid his talent and where's the five virgins that got left outside? Well, they're parables. Jesus made them up. He made them up to make a point.
Um, but there's no question that the five virgins that had no oil in their lamp weren't saved. The oil is the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have oil in your lamp, oil in your body, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, then you're not saved. Paul said, if any man has not the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. Okay? So the five foolish virgins were certainly lost. They were the religious, but they weren't the saved. Uh, okay? They, they assume, because I'm wanting to get into the wedding party and I'm hanging with these, these women that have oil, I'm good. But no. The women with oil said, go get your own. And that tells every human being on earth, you've got to get your own salvation. You've got to get saved yourself. You can't get into heaven on grandma's faith. You're going to, you got to, listen, everybody has got to get their own oil. And that means you've got to be saved yourself. All right. Let's stand together. Amen. How many of you enjoyed that? Was that good? Yeah. And uh, we'll do that again. We will do it again. But I'm going to be talking to you for sure real soon, maybe this Sunday, about um, launching the Prophecy Yet Fulfilled series. And it'll be good. How many of you know we're in the last days? Amen. You want, can you, brother, I love guitar. I play guitar and I like it just kind of plucking the strings behind me. Um, I believe we're in perilous times. I believe they're going to get darker out there, but it's going to get brighter in the real church of Jesus Christ. Amen. But I want to tell you, buckle your seatbelt and put on Jesus. Let's lift our hands. Lord, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. And we just thank you for helping open it up to us tonight. And we pray your blessing on every saint of God washed in the blood here tonight. And we pray, Lord, for those that are the five foolish virgins, those that we know who don't know you. Help us to reach out, maybe bring them to church where they're liable to get saved. Help us, Lord, to draw the net and set the hook and win as many as we can win. And thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name. Anything?